Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the Hard Way to Enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Joined this week by critics Leo Lowenstein, Tim Cogshell of LAist All Film Guide and Synagogues.com, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. First up, yet another film in the Fast and Furious series, Fast X, film directed by uh, Louis Leterrier. Uh, the film's co-written by Justin Lin and Dan Mazzeau. Leo, please start us on Fast X. So, uh, like many entries in the Fast and Furious franchise, this film is very entertaining, but not especially good. (laughs) Um, But that's okay, because if you're a fan of this series, I think you'll be happy with what you get. It has a combination of spectacular action car chases and crashes and visual effects, uh, a cast that's beloved at this point, including Vin Diesel, uh, Michelle Rodriguez, uh, Ludacris, Tyrese Gibson, they've all been in parts of the series before. Um, and it now features uh, faraway locations and exotic, you know, locales. And, and it's got that whole underlying theme of family that brings it together. You know, the series, what's interesting is is this is, the I think, the eighth most successful series, franchise series of all time. It's made something like six billion dollars worldwide which is stunning when you think about that right and Mm. it's got there are attractions at universal studios hollywood and florida dedicated to it there are expressions named after it and you know so forth it is it is a huge success of a franchise and i think this film does deliver on the other hand it's far-fetched parts of it strain your credibility there are things that couldn't possibly happen but there are explosions there are dazzling sequences and bad guys Jason Momoa is is on mm. hand as a villain and it is a callback to Fast 5 uh, which brings brings back for a flash Paul Walker before he mm. he passed away so there you know there does bring back some things from the past keeps the themes going and this is I believe the penultimate <laughs> film in the series so they say there will be one yeah. more yeah. fast X what yeah, did you yeah, think yeah. Tim well, look these things jumped the shark long time ago <laughs> uh, and this one for all its CGI that there's a flaming neutron bomb in this film <laughs> rolling through the streets of the Vatican flame not a neutron bomb a neutron bomb on fire Rolling through the streets, so they jumped the shark a while ago. Jason Momoa, for all of that, you know what this basically is? This is a You Kill My Daddy film. Jason mm-hmm. Momoa is mad because Dom killed his daddy two or three movies back in that nutty scene with the when they have the the uh, they the have vault. the big vaults chained yeah. to the Dodgers and they're swinging them around, killing them, yeah, all that kind of stuff. So they do use that technology to bring Paul Walker back in this film with some help of his brother and some this that and the other thing. So we have moments that we did not see in that film recreated, I guess you would call them, uh, mm-hmm. for for this film, and you kill my daddy, and then just about everybody who's ever been in a Fast and Furious film, including uh, folks who are no longer with us, are in this movie. If not in this one, they'll be in the next one. Charlize comes back as Cypher, a whole thing goes down. The best thing about this movie is Jason Momoa. Mm-hmm. He just said, you know what, guys? I'm just going to pull the top off of this one and let it rip. have fun. Every scene in this movie, he's just completely out of control, just crazy, crazy, crazy. And it's fun, and it's the only thing you really have in this movie. The physics of the Fast and the Furious it's are crazy. insane. Yeah. And they and I think that they just decided to double down on all of it. And it also felt like an effort to get everybody back to the theaters because people want to go to the theaters to see this. They don't want to see it at home. And this is a star-studded, spectacular feature with everything, you know, maxed out to the nth degree. And I think this is going to get people into theaters. Mm-hmm. Fast X, rated PG-13 in wide release. Uh, the stand-up comedy uh, film Wanda Sykes, I'm an Entertainer, is unrated, as you'd expect. Tim, what'd you think? Uh, Funny, mostly. Occasionally, staggeringly funny. 
And it's those moments that I really recommend this film for. She has bits in this film that she sets up at the top of this movie. This old bit with her French wife. She has this wife who's French and has this sort of peppy Le Pew sort of French accent. And, <laughs> and she does this thing with cigarettes. Cause I guess her, And she sets that joke up. And it's funny every time she does it. But that's the beginning of a joke that's going to pay off 20 minutes later. And I love that kind of comedy writing. She does that two or three times in this in this in this concert. Um, if it could be have been anything for me, performance could have been tighter. Actual execution of the bits, the saying of the words, could have been tighter, could have been tighter for me. But the jokes themselves, what she's talking about. Now, Wanda talks about being uh, LGBTQ. She talks about men. She talks about this. She's she, she mostly pointing the, the finger at herself. Uh, her jokes are mostly about Wanda and Wanda's life and Wanda's family. She takes on a few outside things, men in general and their penises. And I think <laughs> that, that was just so funny. I just couldn't. I just think it's astounding that, that, that a person can do a concert like this, Wanda Sykes, and take on all the big issues in the world and not make anybody mad. Mm. Wanda didn't make anybody mad, yeah. but she made everybody laugh. Mm -hmm. So it can be done. Wanda Sykes, I'm an entertainer. Charles. Well, I've been a fan of Wanda Sykes since I first heard a routine about coming out to her parents as black. <laughs> um, it was it was after taping of or doing a film week because I was driving home and I almost drove into a stop sign. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> and as Tim says, she takes on things, she sets up things. Her act is much more structured than a lot of comedians are who just get up and throw one joke after another. Um, I'm not sure that some people wouldn't be offended by some of it if you are. Uh, or conservative MAGA Republican, you're not going to think this is funny. But she's appealing to a much saner audience and <laughs> is uh, at times just hilarious when she talks about anti-vaxxers saying, I don't put substances in my body. And her response is, you use Splenda. <laughs> Wanda Sykes, I'm an entertainer, Lael. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Sykes is just terrifically funny. She has such a great perspective as a black woman who's married to a white French woman who has kids who she says are white because I can I can just get out of here if I want to and there won't be anything left for me to worry about. You know, she, she takes on everything, including what it's like to be in a woman's bathroom and why the whole trans thing shouldn't be an issue because women's bathrooms are kind of a nightmare anyway to begin with. The pandemic, child rearing, being gay, and menopause. I love her take on menopause and what it would be like, she says, if men actually had to go through menopause, there'd be a lot more empathy for women. So it was really funny and I really enjoyed it. Wanda Sykes, I'm an entertainer, unrated. It's streaming on Netflix starting next Tuesday. Asterix and Obelix, uh, the Middle Kingdom of French uh, adventure uh, comedy. Charles, what did you think? Well, Asterix and Obelix are, of course, beloved cartoon figures. They were created by René Goscinny, and Uzzerdo um, uh, 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 did the artwork that goes back to the 60s. This is, depending on how you count it, either the 15th or 16th feature. It's the first one not written or based on um, one of Goscinny's cartoon albums, and you really sense that loss, whereas... Uh, Gosini was very clever with all sorts of things like word plays. Um, obviously, the characters are asterisk and obelix, you know, an obelisk. And there are other characters like Idefix and Getafix are characters. But the new version runs to things like a Chinese um, warlord who is Dan Sing Quinn. And it's heavy handed and People dressing up in silly costumes, trying to look like cartoon drawings and move like animated figures really don't work. And you get the feeling that maybe this franchise has run its as you know, run its course as films and people should just reread the the wonderful comics. The film is directed by Guillaume Canet. Asterix and Obelix, the Middle Kingdom is streaming on Netflix. It's unrated. The Thief Collector, a documentary about a prominent stolen painting. Allison Otto is the director of the documentary. Lael. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I generally enjoy documentaries about odd people and uh, particularly figuring out why they do the things that they do. And this is a character-driven documentary, but the lead characters are absent because they're dead. 
A little backstory. In 1985, an important painting by Willem de Kooning called Woman Ochre was stolen from the University of Arizona Art Museum the day after Thanksgiving. And 32 years later, this painting turned up in the home of this mild-mannered couple uh, in New Mexico, in a little town in New Mexico. Film opens with uh, these antique collector, antique salvage guys that are going through homes and talking about what it was like when they found that painting behind the door in a home that they were going through just to, you know, settle the estate of, to auction off some things. And it was just a bombshell in the art thievery world um, that it that you know and and so much of the the course of the film is why did they do it did they you know what caused them to do it nobody suspected them they were just this ordinary couple not particularly well off who just lived this life did they have an obsession with de Kunig? did they know de Kunig? so they don't well, think they bought it they oh think no they actually no no took it was it. it was stolen it was it was removed it was ripped no, out no but of, I mean oh, the, oh. in who the people whose home it was in right they right. think they actually took it as opposed to that they bought it from someone who yes, stole Yes, because there's no like provenance of it. There's no. It's they apparently remounted it in a in a kind of crappy frame. Um, it's it, the the suggestion, and it's a strong suggestion, is that they somehow took it because a couple was seen in the museum that basically resembles them from the sketch, you know, the police sketch, and. Uh, they somehow distracted the guards, and there was it was the day after Thanksgiving. No one was there. It was 1985. There weren't as many cameras and things, and and uh, they you know took it off, it, cut it out of its frame, and rolled it up and walked off with it. So, uh, you know why why this happened? No one really can quite answer, but it's fun to kind of ponder it, to to hypothesize about it, and uh, you know I I really I think they Otto did a particularly good jobs of sort of fusing all these different elements, including these these three salvage, antique salvage guys who at one point talk about, you know, God, I thought that was, you know, something my, my five-year-old kid could have done better. I would have been more interested in, or they compare it to the Bobono, the, the, the ape drawings, you know, and paintings and so forth, and surprised that it's worth $160 million, oh by the way. So this wow. was a huge, huge deal and um, one of the enduring mysteries of, of art thievery. And um, I will say I didn't love the reenactments. That's sort of the, the weak part where they have characters playing them. But uh, the relatives that's, that are still here and that knew them and can talk about them, there are different theories about why it happened. Uh, it's fun to, fun to listen to. Well, and it appears they, they if they did take it, it wasn't for money that they took it. It was for maybe for love of art, the possibly. Thief, the thief collector, Charles. Well, I like this half as well as Lyle. <laughs> I think the parts that deal with uh, the theft of the painting, the surprise recovery, what they had to go through with the FBI and so forth, the museum to get it back, are really interesting. But I did not like the relatives. You've got nephews and grandnephews and so forth talking about, oh, Auntie so-and-so was so sweet and so was so nice. These people were art thieves. They cut a valuable and significant painting out of its frame, stole it, hid it, stole other things like a Frederick Remington bronze, and they try and pass this off as a little quirk as if Auntie Mame looted the frick on her <laughs> off days. So I think there's half a film here, but the result is not coherent. And again, I just loathe these, these thieves who um, think nothing of looting the you know, a great work of art and hoarding it for decades while it deteriorates. Mm. The Thief Collector documentary directed by Allison Otto. It's unrated in select theaters and available on demand. Uh, the uh, drama Chile 76 uh, is directed by Manuela Martelli, who co-wrote the screenplay. Tim. Yeah, yeah. This is a very powerful and sort of chilling reminder of what it might feel like to live in a police state set in Chile during the Pinochet recently, 1976, obviously, amid uh, the disappearance of murders of opposition figures and intellectuals and lots and lots of students. We have this middle-class woman played by Aline Kuppenheim, uh, who's just an extraordinary actress uh, from all kinds of, uh, of, of, of films uh, um, in the last several years, but over the course of her career. And her biggest concern at that particular moment is getting the exact right shade of pink for her beach house that she's trying to 
paint. This priest comes to her, her priest comes to her and tells her, I, I, I need you to do this thing for me. I have this, this young man, he's been shot by the police, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's disfigured, I need you to take care of him. And she does. She goes off and, and starts taking care of this. This, as her husband who works for the government, as all of her friends who work for the government, as everyone she knows is behind Pinochet, she is taking care of and listening to and treating this young boy and listening to his story and coming to understand exactly what's going on there and how it's going to change her life completely. This is a beautiful movie. Watching it, I felt like I was watching a movie made in the 70s, or at least in the 80s, referring to the 70s. That's excellent filmmaking and a very strong film. Chile 76 is in Spanish with English subtitles. The unrated film is at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. We have many more films to come. We'll hear about them with our trio of critics. It's Film Week on L.A.S. 89.3. We'll be back in one minute. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com sweeps. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by our critics, Tim Cogshell, Charles Solomon, and Leo Lowenstein. Next up is Sanctuary, a thriller starring Christopher Abbott and Margaret Qualley. Zachary Wigan is the director. Micah Bloomberg wrote the screenplay. Leo, please start us on Sanctuary. Sanctuary is a portrait of psychological manipulation. It is about the relationship between a dominatrix, Rebecca, played by Margaret Qualley, and her wealthy client, Hal, played by Christopher Abbott. It is uh, basically what happens when, after being contracted to work for him or with him for a while, uh, Hal decides he's done with Rebecca and he wants to kind of more or less break up with her. Um that doesn't go the way he plans. But instead of being either ick-inducing or yawn-inducing, it is kind of funny. This is an edgy, um, weird, uh, like intriguing, always surprising kind of mystery thriller comedy uh, and and very much a psychological drama as well. I thought it was especially well-written and well-edited and also very well-directed, and I want to give real props to the actors because I thought it could have just it could have de- descended into just muck or repetition, but they, they keep us very much on the edge of our seats. It's, you feel it's almost like kind of vertiginous, like you don't know what's going to happen and you're engaged the whole time. I actually thought it was quite good. Yeah, Sanctuary. Yeah. What do you yeah, think, yeah, Tim? Yeah, cool, cool, cool. It's all about Abbott and Qualley because it's just them. I think I think it's somebody delivers like some some uh, food or something to the hotel room. It's there. just the two but of them. Just Sounds the like it them. could be a play. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's set in this suite. It's very expensive suite and there's several rooms in the suite so we move through the rooms. That's that's the only place where we go. This is tricky because we don't know what that relationship is when the film begins. We don't know if she's a dominatrix. And, you know, we, we sort of learn that as we go and we do learn it. We figure it out. Uh, and then they, we start having these encounters. They start talking. Uh, and we start to understand one why he needs a dominatrix he really needs mm. one uh and 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 uh two why she's a really good dominatrix <laughs> she understands him completely and that is the relationship that we watch get built here there's a reason why he needs her and there's a reason why she needs him mm-hmm. it's exquisite really. it sounds yeah. quite psychologically yes. sophisticated very very sophisticated yeah and, and 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 not very much about sex either no but it's very accessible, too. Yeah, yeah. Sanctuary, which premiered at last year's Toronto International Film Festival, is rated R. It's in select theaters. 
1992 film White Man Can't Jump was a hit for Ron Shelton. This is a remake of that film from 30-plus years ago. The film is directed by Calmatic. Uh, Kenya Barris and Doug Hall are the screenwriters. Tim, what do you think of the new White Man Can't Jump? Well, I'll, I'll say this. The, the 1992 film is a better film. This film, though, has a good deal more on its mind than the 1992 film was exactly what it looked like. These two homies uh, out there hustling uh, basketball, uh, predicated on the notion that that white dude can't play because he's white. Now, in 1992, you can kind of get away with that completely and totally racist before, notion. Before Europeans <laughs> in the NBA. <laughs> hey, uh, a white guy did not win the slam dunk contest until 1996, so we still had four years. You know, we, we could actually say crazy things like that and get away with it. And so it's this sort of, you know, crime and lit notion in 1992. 2023, uh, you can't really get away with this notion at all in 2023. But the, 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 the gist of what's going on in these movies is the same. You got the white dude and you got the black dude and they're going to be hustling uh, everybody else on these basketball courts trying to make some money to take care of their lives, him, his family, uh, and uh, the other, the, uh, Jack Harlow, who's a hip-hop star, apparently. Um, so, I'm so corny, I did not know that. Um, uh, um, wants to try to see if he can get his career back. He thinks he can still make it in the NBA. What this film is about is anger management. It's about letting go of old dreams like that one. And it's about grief. There's a prologue in this film where we meet that black kid when he's uh, in high school about to go off to college. The late Lance Riddick plays his dad. Uh, something happens, something happens. Ten years later, he's a delivery driver hustling basketball for, for a little dough. And we're going to find out about all of that. So a whole lot going on. i got to tell you, that 1992 film, though, because it was so simple, the premise, is, is, is really much more effective in communicating all of the things that they attempt to communicate in this film with sentences, with people saying stuff. They didn't have to say any of this in the night. They just played ball, man. And, <laughs> and everybody on that court was thinking the things that. Now, the other thing this film doesn't have is Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez in that oh, 1990. So she was that extraordinary. Film. And Ron Shelton gave her all the most wonderful dialogue. She has a speech in that film when they're on that bus. Uh, and that speech lingers in my mind to this day. That's how good a speech it is, and it's how good she did it. So uh, if that film was an A, this film is a C. White Man Can't Jump. Remake of the 1992 film is rated R and it's streaming on Hulu. Master Gardener, a thriller starring Joel Edgerton, Paul Schrader, the writer-director, Lale. Is Master Gardener a thriller? I I don't know. I think it's kind of wants to be, but it it falls very short. To me, this is the story of uh, an older, meticulous gardener played by Joel Edgerton, who has a complicated past, and we don't know much about his past because we just see him writing notes in a journal, and we think maybe he's writing a book about gardening because there's a voiceover. Um, he works for a wealthy dowager played Sigourney Weaver, played by Sigourney Weaver, on an on a beautiful estate, and he takes care of her roses and her flowers, and he teaches a young staff how to garden. Along comes uh, at the behest of Sigourney Weaver, her biracial grandniece and uh, he and the grandniece begin to strike up a friendship and maybe more it becomes a problem that has all kinds of repercussions the film itself is part of Paul Schrader's what's called the, his atonement trilogy first reformed was the first one of those and that was you know pretty well received but you know this this to me it just fell short it felt a little bit flat it felt like the relationships never fully develop and his um, Edgerton's performance I mean he's a really fine actor and he can do so many things with his voice you know it's it's amazing he's almost sort of channeling Sean Penn in middle age here mixed with some sort of cowboy loner situation it's hard to know exactly what he's going for but it doesn't the psychology of his character doesn't come out fully and it feels very recessive and sort of um like out of reach Mm. Master Gardener. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, yeah, that tr- these, this trilogy, Oscar Isaacs and the Card Counter, then sort of the middle trilogy. Although I would say that if you, you can follow this through line all the way back through Affliction that was adapted from a Russell Banks novel, but James Colburn and Nick Nolte and that, and you can go on back through, through as far as I'm concerned, all the way back to Tax Driver. And you got the same guy. You got Travis of one sort or another, disaffected, mm-hmm. guilty, uh, 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 a loner, all of that. And in these films, what Schrader is asking us to do is, how, you know, how awful a human being can I present to you and still ask you to forgive them? And uh, my answer is, you, you've asked one too many. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's what you've done. The, 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 the priest, Ethan Hawke, first reform. Okay, I'm going to let that guy go. That card counter who was at Abu Ghraib and did all kinds of things in Oscar Isaac's film. All right, all right. This guy was a, um, a white nationalist, uh, a vicious, vicious white nationalist. And Paul wants me to forgive him. No, I don't forgive him. And, and this movie is sloppy. By the way, this is just sloppy filmmaking. You, you, you cutaways and, and flashbacks and all kinds of things that are going on here. I'm not always sure where we are in time. Uh, there's a lot of explanations. Sigourney Weaver has to lift a lot here to explain who that little black girl is mm. uh, in her family. I'm like, man, you, 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 we're just dragging the whole kitchen mm. sink into this thing, Paul. And you know what? I'm still not going to forgive that guy. Mm. So you're not going to get there. And if that's his desire, this one failed. We're talking about Master Gardener from writer-director Paul Schrader, starring Joel Edgerton. It's rated R in select theaters. The documentary 32 Sounds, uh, as the title uh, says, uh, really explores how sounds affect us. Uh, a number of different people uh, with their experiments in sound are featured in the film, which is directed by Sam Green. And later this hour on Film Week, I'll be talking with the sound designer and re-recording mix for the documentary Mark Mangini, who is a two-time Oscar winner for Dune and Mad Max Fury Road. Charles, what did you think of 32 Sounds? Well, when you talk to the sound designer, Larry, tell him you don't know me. Okay. (laughs) Um, I was very interested in the subject of this film. My first professional job was as a classical music critic. I've had to write a lot about animation and sound and the links among them. And this film just doesn't go anywhere. It's just throwing things at the wall and hoping some of them stick. There's no development. There's no real structure. You've got a host who varies between kind of a an, a self-conscious Uncle Wiggly and New Age touchy-feely. You know, what if Charles Babbage's thoughts that every sound ever uttered still exists somewhere in the world was right? Well, do you have anything to suggest it is? He talks about an early uh, attempt at stereo or film in England, but doesn't mention Fantasia and the significance of Fantasound. Um, I just found it kind of a mess and kind of drivel. 32 Sounds documentary is unrated at Lemley's NoHo Theater in North Hollywood. Um, Lael, can you quickly tell us about the HBO music documentary Love to Love You, Donna Summer? Sure. Uh, This is directed by one of Summer's daughters, and it is an affectionate, uh, verging on too affectionate documentary about one the the so-called queen of disco. You know, Summer had maybe a dozen hits that were huge in the late 70s, early 80s, and she was, you know, absolutely significant to the gay community, to to disco. She had a huge legacy in that regard. Um, this film sort of scratches the surface. There's lots of archival footage, lots of home movie footage, lots of grainy footage. It doesn't really get in deep, and I didn't learn too much about her. Love to Love You, Donna Summer, streaming on HBO, and Victim Suspect, which is a Netflix uh, documentary quick thought on that, Lael. Sure. Uh, This comes from the director, Nancy Schwarzman, who made a really good doc called Roll Red Roll about the Steubenville, Ohio sexual assault case and exposing that and how the use of of technology and cell phones made that, blew that up. This is following a journalist named Rachel DeLeon who finds out that sexual assault victims in many cases sort of all over the country she finds a pattern are being are being forced to not only recant but then told that they made up their stories and they're being turned from victims into suspects and in some cases arrested which is a really disturbing trend um, it's a very, very important subject. I didn't feel that Schwartzman brought anything near the incisiveness that she brought to her early documentary. This appears to be much more a portrait of Rachel DeLeon, who's an interesting journalist and a compelling subject in herself, but not nearly as compelling as the women in this film. Victim Suspect is rated R. It's streaming on Netflix starting next Tuesday. Our Peter Rayner is joining us, our film critic, to talk about a couple of events, including... The the Hollywood Blacklist exhibit at the Skirball Cultural Center, which is up through September. Peter, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Peter, just briefly, what did you think of the Skirball's look at the Blacklist, which, of course, has so been so written about, terrific documentaries and dramatic films? How did the exhibition handle it? 
Uh, it's terrific. Um, in the brief time that I have, uh, maybe we can do it and uh, extend it uh, later on. But it, there are artifacts uh, from the era, uh, diaries, letters, uh, newsreels. It's, it's beautifully laid out. It uh, really gives you a very comprehensive history of that time from all sorts of angles. And uh, it, it really is, is, you know, it brings home not only that era, but uh, the correspondence with a lot of what's going on in our era. The Hollywood Blacklist exhibit at the Skirball Cultural Center. The Ojai Music Festival, which you're part of every year, comes up uh, June 8th through the 11th. What are highlights this year? Yeah, this is probably the greatest outdoor music festival of, of new music uh, in the country at this point. It's the 77th anniversary. Uh, Rihanna Giddens uh, is the music director this year. She just uh, won the Pulitzer uh, with Michael Abels for uh, an opera that she did, uh, Omar, uh, a suite of which will be um, featured in the festival. Uh, it opens with uh, Gabriela Ortiz's Liquid Borders, which is a uh, with the Attica Quartet, John Adams, Rihanna Giddens again, Philip Glass, music by Haydn. Uh, there's a world premiere of um, uh, Between Worlds, a fourth solo string work uh, by uh, based on the paintings of Bill Trailer, who lived almost to 100, uh, lived through the Civil War, Emancipation, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, the Great Migration. Uh, there's an early music uh, concert uh, featuring uh, Renaissance concert music and uh, the ancient uh, Persian music and uh, modal uh, uh, electronic music. Uh, it's, it's quite a mix. Uh, there's a strings-attached concert of string instruments from America, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. Uh, all sorts of stuff. There's some free events, too. Uh, it, uh, it takes place June 8th through the 11th. Um, and Rhiannon Giddens also uh, sings um, in the uh, suite from uh, the Omar uh, opera, uh, she also wrote a children's book that's going to be uh, have been reading a musical performance right. by her, her children's book, Build a House. So there's quite a bit going okay. on. All right. Uh, Peter Rayner, Christian Science Monitor film critic, joining us to talk about both the Hollywood Blacklist exhibit at the Skirball through September, the Ojai Music Festival early next month. You're listening to Film Week on LAist 89.3. Coming up, I'll be talking with Oscar-winning film designer Mark Magini. He'll be talking with us about uh, the work that he's done on Dune, Mad Max Fury Road, and other films like Blade Runner 2049, as well as the new documentary 32 sounds we'll be back in just 90 seconds support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum presenting the film series Testigo Witness Goya in the Movies held on select Fridays in May each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world including Goya or the Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel screenings are at 4.30pm on consecutive Fridays now through May 31st more information at nortonsimon.org it's on trend for a world rapidly warming due to climate change. I'm LA's senior science reporter Jacob Margolis, and I help Southern Californians understand the science of our imperfect paradise. It is not unprecedented at all for fires in the western U.S. to affect cities on the eastern seaboard. So that we can better protect our environment and prepare for natural disasters as the climate continues to change. There's a giant mass of warm water stretching from Alaska down to California. independent journalism, fact-based journalism. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Earlier, we heard about the new film, 32 Sounds, a documentary which is completely immersive. It explores the phenomenon of sound, from bird calls to voice memos to the crackle of a falling tree. And the film takes the audience on a number of sonic journeys, beginning in the womb. This is a recording made by someone named Aggie Murch. She was a midwife for many years, and her husband is Walter Murch, the famous film editor. This is our first sound, sound number one, the sound of the womb. I read an essay by Walter Murch in which he claims that 
in this place where we all started out, sound is the first sense we develop. At four months, you can hear all this, but you still can't see or taste. In the womb, we are alone, but connected to the world through sound. That's from 32 Sounds, an immersive documentary directed by the man whose voice you just heard, Sam Green. It's a very personal story as he uh, tells the story of sound through a number of different people featured in the film. And we're pleased to have with us the sound designer and re-recording mixer for the documentary, Mark Mangini, who is a two-time Oscar winner for Dune and Mad Max Fury Road, six-time nominated sound designer designer for films including Blade Runner 2049, uh, a number of the Star Trek reboot films, The Fifth Element, where, of course, the soundtrack was a huge part of that movie, Gremlins and more 46-year career in Hollywood. Mark, you don't uh, look old enough for that, but thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. It's a joy to be here, Larry. Thank you. And uh, in a medium where sound is uh, primal. Well, and, and, you know, I'm sure when when you're meeting people at a party or something like that, people ask what you do, and you have a chance to tell them. But but um, what's the challenge in imparting the the importance of the sound design of a film to the to the overall viewer experience of a movie? Because something we don't we often don't really think about. Right, um, and and in some sense, that's what's magical about sound and sound design is that we're the, kind of this backdoor, we have this backdoor ability to lead an audience without, in a very indirect way, we kind of come in through the subconscious because most people have a visual dominance. We are less literate, aurally, with A-U-R-A-L-Y. And um, that allows us to be very sneaky in using sound very efficiently to tell story. And ultimately... That's the success of sound in cinema or any um, narrative art. And it's the success of certainly of 32 sounds that we use sound to tell a story. Now, you, you started off by saying you, you, you go to parties and people always ask you, you know, what do you do? And most people's idea of what people like myself do with sound is, oh, you do the Foley, you do those footstep sounds, or you you rustle newspapers, or you see an explosion and you put in an explosion. But that's just a very, very simplistic, that's kind of a color-by-numbers version of what a sound designer contributes to a project. And how closely does a sound designer work with the director to, to get that vision the way the director wants it? Ideally, um, very closely. So, for example, um, one of the joys of this film and my love of Sam Green, our director, is that he brought me on as a consultant even as he was developing the script, even before he shot, so that my ideas from sound, our ideas, as we collaboratively developed them, could influence what he would actually shoot. Now, the tradition in cinema, which is my forte, I've been making, uh, I've done 155 movies in 46 years. Oh um, the, the tradition is that sound happens in something called post-production. Uh, you write a script, you shoot a script, you bring it back, you edit the movie, and then you give it to sound people to be reactive rather than proactive. And that's the sign, I think, of the great filmmakers like Sam, like Denis Villeneuve, like George Miller, as you mentioned, like Luc Besson in The Fifth Element. They, they feel that sound has to be a part of the building of the movie itself. Well, in, in those films and the directors that did those films you're talking about, you can't imagine those apart. The sound is so integral to all of those films. Take Dune, for example. I can't imagine uh, Denis Villeneuve didn't know, you know, kind of what he wanted that film to sound like as much as look like, and that so your role is going to be really key. It's essential, so much so that uh, Denis on Blade Runner 2049 and on Dune brought Theo Green, my design partner on, on those films, on during production such that, and this is highly untraditional, we were developing sounds before he knew what he wanted so that we could offer ideas from whole cloth and he could respond to those. And in some cases, 
those sounds not only influenced the nascent edit of the film through our working with Joe Walker, but would influence the design of the visual effects. Very untraditional, whereas normally visual effects goes off and creates a spaceship or a worm or a you know, would, uh, uh, you know a, a thing you've never seen before. And we are meant to usually respond to that by developing a sound based on what we've seen. We liked to flip that on its head and say, here's some sound. How would you animate this? You draw something to this and we'll take the lead on it. Well, and when you're doing science fiction, we've kind of focused on that because sound is particularly key in those movies where you're depicting the future. Yeah. How... How much does sort of the canon of sci-fi inform the sounds that you choose? In other words, our expectations <laughs> as viewers of the film, here's what a spaceship sounds like, right. for example, or whooshing by a planet. How, right. how, how much of that or how much is are you free to totally come up with your own sound vocabulary? Um, on, with filmmakers like Denis and George Miller and Luc Besson and Joe Dante, um, we are very free because they recognize that we are artists just as the production designer is an artist and wants to contribute original ideas, just like a composer wants to bring melodies and harmonies and textures musically to a project. We have a great deal of latitude. Now, Dune specifically is is, is a unique case study because... The, the canon itself has some, some tropes. Uh, I think if the uh, movie-going public were to think about science fiction, sound specifically, they, their mind, their imagination would wander to electronic sound because the tropes are that to see something you've never seen before, which is arguably what science fiction is trying to do visually, you should hear something you've never heard before. And that implies electronica and synthesizers and, you know, those kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the, those electronic yeah. sounds. Yeah, and, going way back to the theremin. Yeah, yeah, go, right. Thank you, the theremin, exactly right. Um, our, one of the, 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 the ground rules we laid for ourselves on Dune was to defy that convention, to, to, defi to defy that tr sonic trope. And in fact, of the 3,000 plus bespoke sounds we created for Dune, only three of them were made with a synthesizer. 3,000 plus Individually, sounds that, that were created, created for the film. Created from whole cloth, exactly Wow. Right. Are you working on the second film that's coming out soon? Nope. Nope. I'm on to another project and All having right. a great time. We can yeah. talk about that, too. All right. Sounds, sounds good. We're talking with Mark Mangini, who's sound designer and re-recording mixer for the documentary 32 Sounds, directed by Sam Green. The documentary, by the way, is uh, out uh, at uh, Lemley's NoHo Theater in North Hollywood for a one-week run, an immersive documentary that looks at sound from all different angles and perspectives. And uh, features some fascinating individuals who've made sound their life's work. We'll continue with our guest when we come back in just one minute. Here it's Film Week on LAist 89.3, where you can hear the full hour of the program, in case you came in late, wherever you get your podcasts or at LAist.com. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by sound designer Mark Mangini, twice an Oscar winner for the films Dune and Mad Max Fury Road, six-time Oscar-nominated for Blade Runner 2049, uh, Star Trek's uh, 1, 4, and 5, The Fifth Element, Gremlins. But that's just, that's skimming the surface of his 46-year career in cinematic sound. He's with us on Film Week to talk about the new documentary, 32 Sounds, very personal film from director Sam Green, who narrates his film and tells the story of sound through a number of different perspectives. Mark, when you're working on a film uh, with a director who's this is very it's a very personal story, mm. but overlapping with trying to tell 
the power of sound. How do you make sure that you're connecting with that very personal vision of the director in a case like this? Um, good question, because uh, it, you just made me think of, a, of a, a, a lovely scene in the film that Sam really wanted to present, and it wasn't until we talked it through sonically that we solved a problem we he wasn't even aware he had. Growing up in New York, um, there's if you live in the city, everyone knows about this gentleman who drives around in the car, and you, you saw it, I think, when you yeah. saw the scene. Something uh, in the air yeah, some, tonight. Playing, <laughs> blasting something in the air tonight. And part of the experience of that is the visceral nature of the subwoofer, this gigantic low-frequency speaker he has in his car that booms through city blocks, and you can feel it coming, arguably, before you actually hear it coming. It's rumbling like uh, an earthquake. And Sam really wanted to present that. And when he talked to me about the scene uh, and and his experience of it, I, I, I said, Sam, you know, we're going to have a problem because the first presentation of 32 Sounds was a headphone-only experience, not in a cinema. And I said, how are you going to... Um, how are you going to reproduce all that low frequency? How are you going to reproduce the subwoofer? Headphones don't do that. And that led to other discussions that begat a touring company that had to deploy subwoofers accompanying the headphone experience so that the audience the vibration. They could, feel it. could feel it. And in fact, now Sam encourages audiences to come down and put their hands right on the speaker and feel it like, like, like the, the, the monolith in 2001. Wow, or the altar call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come Indeed. down, lay hands. Yeah, lay hands. Um, it's fascinating. And, and share with us how the film has been exhibited because you mentioned audiences have uh, been able to plug in headphones right. uh, to be able to hear it in uh, binaural sound. Right. So, uh, you know, share how that's worked. Sure. Well, coming up this week is our cinematic uh, distribution of it. It will be in 7.1 and 5.1 sound. With a subwoofer. With a subwoofer. And you'll get that gut punch when when you hear in the air tonight. But it started life um, as a live theater presentation, meaning in a theater, with film projection for the film portions of the, the project, but with live narration by Sam and live music by J.D. Sampson, our composer. And the film clips would come up and that would be played over headphones, and that is where we employed binaural sound. Uh, binaural simply means a two-channel reproduction that gives you an immersive uh, sound experience versus just a left-right, meaning you only hear sounds in the left-right. In binaural sound, you can hear it above you and behind you and to the sides of you. And I love that part of the film that explored binaural sound because you had the professor who's worked with it, with the mannequin, with the yeah. with the microphones that go in the ears of the mannequin. Exactly so the right. idea is to create the the channels as as designed for both sides of the head. It's fascinating. It's it's capturing the way we hear. Uh, think of your ears as microphones. It's capturing the sound and, and being translated to your brain. Uh, it's a it's a lovely experience, and it's really fun to. And Sam is still touring that around the world and the United States. That professor also. There's a very poignant scene in the film where his sister, I believe, finds an old cassette tape of him at mm -hmm. 11 years of age, talking to um, to his older self <laughs> in the year 2000. And it actually, I think, wasn't found until after that. But but the idea is that he is a boy is talking to himself as a man. And there are so many poignant things that the boy says to the older version of himself. Mm, and the, the camera just link. It's so precious. It's, he totally, he hopes he's essentially what he's grown up to be. And he is. And <laughs> is. And, and you see the face of the professor as he's listening to his 11-year-old self. It's like a scene you're never going to see in another movie. It's deeply moving. It made me cry the first time yeah, I, I saw it. And it reminded me of, of something I've always known and understood. F for me, and obviously I have a bias, um, I think sound has the capability of being far more moving 
than image. And I say that because myself and friends of mine often do polls when we lecture and speak at seminars, and we ask an audience, if you could have a memento from a deceased loved one, would it be a photograph or a sound recording? And most people, now arguably maybe because I'm in the room, it, it, it leans the conversation, but most people choose to, choose sound because there's something visceral about it. Yeah, uh, that you don't get from a photograph. Yeah, it's and it has the ability to be more representative because um, when you see the photo, it 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 may bring to mind different situations throughout the course of your interaction with a person. But the advantage of the audio is it can take you back to all the things that they've said that made an impression on you or that were memorable over the course of years. And and. I think that's going to be the much richer uh, mind to explore. Uh, very often when I have this same discussion, it, music is so inextricably linked to those memories when, when, when we are asked to look back on momentous times in our lives, there's a song or a piece of music associated with that. Yeah, yeah, more than an image. It's so true. We're talking with sound designer Mark Mangini, Oscar winner uh, and a multi-time Oscar nominated for his work. He's the sound designer and re-recording mixer for the documentary 32 Sounds, directed and narrated by Sam Green. The film uh, is uh, in a one-week run, just opened at Lemley's NoHo uh, North Hollywood Theater. Your chance to see the film there. Mark, what are you hoping that that uh, viewers and listeners to the film of, of 32 Sounds take from the experience? My hope is that you leave our film with a perhaps a slightly deeper understanding of how sound actually affects us and encourages us all to take a deeper look at the influence sound has on our lives and how we can be more cognizant of sound in our, in our environment because we can utilize that tool consciously uh, in so many effective ways that we already do unconsciously or subconsciously. One of the uh, people profiled is a woman late in life who has spent her life capturing the sounds of, of rivers and other tributaries, uh, underwater and, and creekside as well. And it's just, it's a remarkable uh, life that she spent. And she herself is a fascinating person, just one of the people that featured in 32 Sounds. Mark, thank you so much for thank coming you, on and talking about it, as well as your work as a sound designer in uh, far different films, these huge budget Hollywood spectacles. Thank you so much. Thank you, Larry. It's been a pleasure. Mark Mangini joining us. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3 from all of us. Have a terrific weekend. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.